Hey church, uh, just a quick disclaimer as I jump into this message. Uh, I was told not too long ago that a friend of mine that none of you know who I mentored while in college uh, about five years ago uh, passed away tragically. And so uh, if you notice something about me as far as my cadence or how I'm teaching, I wanted to let you know that that's news that I just heard uh, less about an hour ago. And so I want to start with that as I jump into this text. Hey church family. It's nice to be with you again on this playlist as we produce this so we have the opportunity to read and study the Bible together and have worship. Our kids get the opportunity to have Bible studies, Bible stories read, and we get to, as a community, continue to connect and be on the same page when it comes to what we're studying. We're going to be starting a new series, When God Talks Back, and we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk. And one of the things I've noticed about the book of Habakkuk is that we're in a current context where this book, when I first read it, I didn't think of how it would apply so much to today and what we're dealing with. This weekend, May 7th, the weekend of May 17th, 2020, we are currently involved in a shelter in place mandate that has got us spending most of our time at home. Many have lost their jobs. Many have uh, gotten sick or worse, and everyone has had their world affected in some way by this pandemic that has changed the course of history, while hopefully creating more of a dependency in our lives upon God. What if you don't feel close to God? We've all been there. Even during a good season of following Jesus and different worship experiences, learning new things about God from his word, we may have all felt some distance from God at some point in our walk with him. We've all wrestled with the fact that God feels distant, that he feels unavailable, that he just doesn't feel like he's there. How many of us in desperation have called out to God to not hear anything back from him? How many of us have been uh, starting to feel mistrust towards God or we tend to not believe that he even exists because of what seems like silence from him? Could it be that he isn't silent at all? That either he is speaking and we just don't understand or hear or recognize his voice. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Tim, is this where you're just going to tell us if we want to hear from God, open your Bible? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to tell you. But here's the thing. What if in our desperation, or in some cases our whining, if we're honest, that God actually speaks back to us? Out loud, maybe. Would we be ready for that? Would we even believe that it was from him? I hear a lot of people saying that they've heard from God. And when you press in on what they just said about hearing from God and you ask something like, well, what does he sound like? People tend to get defensive and offended that you've asked such a question about their personal experience with their God. But here's what we know. If we hear from God or we get an impression which we believe is from God, or some random thing happens that points us to God in some way, and we believe that it is wholeheartedly from God, it cannot contradict nor add to Scripture. That's what we know about this, that when God speaks to us in whatever way that we think that he has, he cannot contradict Scripture and he will not add to Scripture. So God gives us his word. And the word became flesh and he dwelled among us and he wrote what he did so we could know him. So we didn't have to guess 
at who he is. And as we've said often, if we love God, if I love God and God loves me, I want to love God the way that he tells me to love him back simply because he is my God. And we begin this new, or I'm sorry, we begin this Old Testament book of the Bible. We will be studying three chapters over the next many weeks of this conversation, a dialogue, a discussion, and what sometimes feels like an argument between God, the master of the universe, the creator of all things, and Habakkuk, a minor prophet who seemed to want to question God about what seemed like his unwillingness, God's unwillingness, to intervene in all the evil that was happening in society. So here we go, verse 1 of Habakkuk chapter 1. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. Habakkuk begins with this verse, which most believe to be the author stating who he is. That a prophecy was received, an oracle was seen in other translations. A prophecy in this context was also known as a burden that had been communicated It was a a burden that was now put on the prophet to communicate with other people when it was a call to repentance. It was a weighty message that would bring judgment, but it would also bring hope. And the warnings that God provide are not to steal our joy. They're not to rain on our parade or squash our hope. In fact, it's the exact opposite. The warnings that God provides through the prophecies of judgment are to increase our joy and to accentuate our hope. Because God always provides a way out through faith and repentance. But there are consequences to living however we want rather than what God wants for us. And in this dialogue between God and Habakkuk, we will experience God being patient and being direct, being metaphorical and being clear. We also get to experience that God does not talk at us, but he talks with us. But we don't get to have the final word, nor do we know best, nor is God's word not complete and all that we need to know him better and to have a relationship with him by trusting the God of the Bible because he made it so that we don't have to guess at his character and his being because he revealed himself in scripture. Now Habakkuk, it is a name that means to embrace. To embrace was the one, as we will read, where he goes to God, seemingly frustrated at what seems like God having a lack of action. And then verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Habakkuk begins with a cry for help, a lamenting concern that he sees so much injustice, but God seems to not care. Habakkuk is expecting God to intervene. Let's get real. This pandemic seems out of control, doesn't it? When it first started, it was reported in a faraway land for most of us. And even as it started to spread into the United States, it didn't seem real. The world changed overnight, it seemed. Stores were closed, high fives and hugs were replaced with stares under face masks and moving across the street like the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Then maybe you or someone you know were directly affected by the coronavirus. And then it started to get even more real. We're going on two months in shelter in place in Northern California, and it is easy to start thinking about our rights as Americans. 
and maybe even discount the severity of this highly contagious virus. And in all of this, to wonder the same words that Habakkuk speaks out loud to God, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Let's be real, though. If you're like me, you didn't start praying this way, did you? I began with thinking that this will pass. People are overreacting, and in a few days or weeks, we'll all get back to normal. Now that we're two months in, and people I've known have been directly affected by COVID-19, my prayers are becoming more urgent. But I don't know that I can say, how long, Lord, will you be silent and not listen to me? Because I don't know that I've prayed urgently until someone I know has been infected by this. I think we want God to show up and fix something rather than allow God to show off and produce something. And we often want to fast forward pain or discomfort because we think that that is the best thing for us rather than being refined through tough circumstances. Now, when I believe God is passive, I tend to miss that he is intending to produce patience in me. Listen, God is intentional. And I hope you understand that. I hope that everything that happens in this life, everything you go through, God is not sitting back, not paying attention. He is intentional. And I don't think we remember that when a circumstance presents itself that is uncomfortable, that God's still involved. I was talking with one of our elders this week, Daniel Dalewood. It was also his birthday this week. Happy birthday, bro. Sorry about the sushi. He gets what I mean. And we were talking about some difficult things happening in our lives. And he was quick to point out what he knew that the difficult circumstances were producing in his own life. And that's the perspective that the Holy Spirit points us to in our trials. We do not know when Habakkuk specifically was written. But we can assume because the Lord speaks of the Babylonians later in verse 6, it suggests that it was a later 7th century BC date, shortly before Nebuchadnezzar commenced his military march through Nineveh, probably around 612 BC. So then he goes on in verse 3, Habakkuk says, Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflicts abound. Therefore the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk's complaint is about a society and a nation that has backslid. They have backslid so much that they don't even have resemblance to the nation that God called his chosen people. Let's back up a little. What's the backstory about Judah being a society that doesn't at all mirror what you'd expect from people that were called God's very own? Now, there's so much context that I'd like to cover. And unfortunately, I can't talk as fast as Naomi Miller can in those subscribe videos, but I'll try to give us what we need for Habakkuk's framework. At the end of the 40 years of wandering in the desert with the Israelites, Moses, who was walking with them and leading them towards the promised land, he dies. Moses' successor was Joshua, and he was used by God to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. They went understanding God's promise that none of their enemies would be able to stand against them. God showed his power at Jericho, the first city they encountered, by causing the walls of the city to fall down flat. In his grace and mercy, God spared a believing prostitute named Rahab from Jericho's destruction. 
Over the next many years, Joshua and the Israelites succeeded in driving out most of the Canaanites. And yet the land was divided among the 12 tribes. However, the conquest of the land was actually incomplete. Through a lack of faith and simple disobedience, they failed to finish the job, and there were pockets of Canaanites that remained all over the land. These pagan influences had an effect on the Israelites who began to adopt the worship of idols that were in direct contrast and violation of God's law. After Joshua's death, the Israelites experienced a really messed up time. The nation would lapse into idolatry and God would bring judgment in the form of slavery to an enemy. The people of God would repent and call on the Lord for help. God would then raise up a judge to destroy the idols, rally the people, and defeat the enemy. Peace would last for a little while. But after the death of the judge, the people invariably fell back into idolatry, and the cycle would repeat. The final judge was Samuel, who was also a prophet. During this time, Israel demanded a king to rule over them in order to be like the other nations. Well, they have it. I want it. God granted their request. And Samuel anointed Saul as Israel's first king. Saul was a pretty big disappointment. If you've read about him, you know this. However, he disobeyed God and was removed from power. God then chose David of the tribe of Judah to succeed Saul as king. And God promised David that he would have a descendant who would reign on the throne forever. It was Jesus. David's son, Solomon, reigned in Jerusalem after King David died. During the reign of Solomon's son, civil war broke out. And then the kingdom was divided. And there was the northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And the Davonic or Davinic dynasty ruled in Judah. The kingdom of Israel had an unbroken series of wicked kings over and over. None of them sought the Lord or attempted to lead the nation according to God's law. God sent prophets to warn them, including the miracle worker Elijah and Elisha. But the kings persisted in their wickedness. Finally, God brought the Assyrian nation upon Israel in judgment. And the Assyrians deported most of the Israelites, and that was the end of the northern kingdom. But then the kingdom of Judah had its share of wicked kings as well. But the chain was broken by an occasional godly king who truly loved the Lord and sought to govern according to the law of God. God was faithful to his promise and blessed the people when they followed his commandments. The nation persevered during the Assyrian invasion and they endured many other threats. During this time, the prophet Isaiah preached against the sins of Judah and foresaw that the Babylonians would invade. Isaiah also predicted the coming of the servant of the Lord, that he would suffer for the sins of his people and be glorified and sit on David's throne. And the prophet Micah predicted that the promised one would be born in Bethlehem. Eventually, the nation of Judah also fell into gross idolatry. God brought the nation of Babylon against Judah in judgment. Er, wait, that's a spoiler if you haven't read ahead. More on that next week. So this is what Habakkuk is complaining about. A constant repeating of history, a lack of repentance. He wants God to answer, why are you not intervening, God? 
Now, as we will study next week, God has a pretty powerful and unexpected plan. But what a situation. Sin and immorality and carnal pleasures, they were rampant. Those in government were uncaring. They were idle. And those who applied the law applied it dishonestly, and justice was nowhere to be found. And Habakkuk, a man of God, has had his heart broken as he cannot understand why God would allow any of this. So you have a society that is completely out of control, that they have distanced themselves so far from the law of God, and Habakkuk wants to know why God isn't doing anything about it. But what's the law for? I'm glad that you asked. Because most of us treat the law like it is the thing that can justify us, and it can't. The law of God was put into place so that we would know how to love God back through obedience to his word. The law of God was put into place so that we could see our need for him. But Habakkuk, like many of us, sees injustice and wants to know what the authorities are going to do about it. We think it's unjust to just stand back and allow things to happen if they're deserved or not. But look at the proverb that's written by King David's son, King Solomon. In Proverbs 11, chapter 11, verse 21, it says, Be sure of this, the wicked will not go unpunished, but those who are righteous will go free. See, God wasn't passive. He wasn't idle. He was patient. And he had a plan that will bother Habakkuk even more than what seemed like his passivity already had. God's justice is not based on our impatient timetables, nor does he do things the way that we would. In fact, this is a consistent theme that we see from the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, Isaiah says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We we often, let's be real, often think we know what's best without having any recollection of what's happening right behind us, let alone in other time zones. God's eternal perspective is something that he does not waver from. We hear a motivational message. We experience a worship song that points us to eternity. We have a near-death experience, and then we have this momentary new perspective that deals with things that last longer than milk in our fridge. But then what happens to every single one of us after a few moments pass, a few days, a few weeks, a few months? We forget, and we go back to the here and now. We don't think about tomorrow because we are so enamored with today, but God is going to respond to Habakkuk with a perspective and an answer to Habakkuk's complaints that are going to blow Habakkuk's mind. Because to him, it seems so out of character for God to not do the things the way that Habakkuk would want them to be done. There was this quote that no one really knows who said it, but it's this, God created us in his image. And we've been attempting to repay him the favor ever since. I think there's so much truth to that. We're trying to get God to do the things that we would do. So don't always assume that God would do things the way you do them. Look at his word. Pay attention to his word. And see that, in fact, he tends to do the things opposite the way the world would assume that he'd respond. This is why we focus so much on God's word at Church of the Valley. Because we live in a society that wants 
God to be how the society defines him rather than how he defines himself revealed in the scriptures. Because the will of God is revealed in the word of God, identified in the Son of God. And we say it all the time. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. The same God who speaks to Habakkuk in this letter is the one who fed 5,000. The same God who gave the law on tablets to Moses walked, in, walked on water in front of his disciples. So as we experience God's answer to Habakkuk's complaint next week, we must remember that God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. In Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and today, and forever. So because we're sheltered in place doesn't mean that God is sheltered in place. He is involved in our lives and producing something in us that we are yet to realize. But I want to point out something that makes the book of Habakkuk more important than most of us realize and more relevant today than anything else we could have studied right now. Habakkuk is like all of us. He questions God. The only difference is that he actually says it out loud and it gets documented and it becomes a letter in the Bible that we now can read to understand ourselves better and more importantly, understand God better. Now, let's be clear. All of us question God, every single one of us, but some of us do it on the down low more than others. Some of us question him but we were possibly raised in a type of Christianity that says that we're not allowed to question God or, to, or that if we doubt that that's a sin. Or maybe we've just picked that up from examples of other people that we think know and love Jesus, possibly within the church that we worship at. This book, Habakkuk, it points out the stark contrast that questioning God is not a Christian taboo. It's the most honest contribution to our Christian example that any of us can have. I listened to a message on this exact passage from a pastor many of you have probably heard or read, read through before, uh, Pastor Matt Chandler in Texas. And he pointed out something that I'm going to attempt to not plagiarize, but I need to share with us as a community. When we're not honest with God and others about our doubts or frustrations, we start to create a false facade that God can see right through and people never get to see the real us. So then our connection to community is fake. Our discipleship can be fake. Even our worship can be fake. Listen, I'm not a deeply educated person, or as a few mentors of mine have said to me in the past where they correct me, I'm not a diplomaed person. I didn't spend years in college grad school, seminary, that many of my other peers and other pastors that I know have. And for years, that made me feel like less than. It made me feel like I had to overcompensate for my lack of education. So I studied a lot. There's nothing wrong with that. But I may have studied out of the motivation to be accepted by my peers rather than to know the God of the Bible better or to at least talk the talk so I didn't feel out of place when I was around other pastors and people who knew a lot more about the Bible than I did. So I studied, and I learned as much as I could, 
And I still do that about whatever topic or book of the Bible or time in history that I can. The difference now, though, in comparison to five years ago, is that I do not desire to have people accept me as much as I desire to know my God better. I, sometimes I feel like I'm addicted to wanting to know Jesus personally. I want to be as close to him as I possibly can when I'm in my right mind. But then there's the reality that I'm a pretty forgetful person, probably very similar to you, who doesn't always strive to want to be close to God. I don't always strive to want to follow Jesus. But I want Jesus to follow me and to provide me with the desires and wants of my heart that have nothing to do with him. Why am I saying this? Because as one of the pastors at the church, I need to model what confession looks like, both to God and to those who I trust and walk with unto the Lord. And I don't want to fake stuff. Because if I do that, then I create a false pretense of what a follower of Jesus ought to look like. Logically, I have never understood why people try to fake it with God. Guess what? He knows. And he's not fooled. See, you cannot fake it until you make it in the kingdom of God. It doesn't work that way. But practically, I know that when I'm unwilling to voice my concerns or confess my sins, that I'm ultimately faking it with God if I know it or not. So first, when we hide our doubts and we fake our trust, we create an example of a follower of Christ that isn't genuine and shouldn't really be emulated or followed. And we cannot grow spiritually because we're basing our faith on what other people see rather than on who we know personally in Jesus Christ. That leads to the second problem. If you're not honest with God and honest with others about who you really are, you're going to be forced to pretend specifically in a church context. There is a lot of imitation in the church, and this isn't necessarily bad in and of itself, but if we attempt to just go through the motions while we attempt to imitate other believers and those believers are also going through the motions and pretending to be someone that they're not, we're just an imitation of an imitation. We're like a cheap knockoff iPhone, and that doesn't work. Before we went into shelter in place, the biggest concern that the leadership at COV has and has had is that people might be going through the motions. This is something that takes place in everyone at some point. Every single one of us in our Christian walk can totally get by. We can totally blend in and hide and never really be ourselves because we're putting so much energy in attempting to pretend to be someone that we're not. That's why we attempt to focus on spiritual growth at Church of the Valley. That's why we talk so much about spiritual growth. When we're looking for growth in the fruit of the Spirit, most people aren't privy to that being the thing that they're going to try to fake. So when someone is becoming more patient with people, and it's seen and it's celebrated, it's not because they tried really hard to fake their patience. They're becoming more patient as the Lord produces that fruit in us. So if you can't be honest with where you're at, you're simply going to pretend you're something that you're not. But let me explain why that's so dangerous. It's very easy to get the routine down in Christian circles. It's easy to start to pick up on the language of Christianity, the subtle idiosyncrasies, 
that we have and then attempt to imitate them. We know when to raise our hands during the song. We know when that song is going to start to get powerful and that's when we stand. And then we do it all without the heart that we should do it for in the first place. Did you know that two people can sit next to each other in the pews for 50 years? They can hear the same sermons. They can stand and sit down. They can both raise their hands during the worship time. They can say amen during the sermon. They can give an offering. They can take communion together. They can be in the same Bible studies and one can be eternally separated from God while the other is a loving child of God's. But how can that be, you may ask? Because it isn't about what you do or what you know, but why you do what you do and who you know. It's not about what you do or what you know, but why you do what you do and who you know. So the reality of fake it till you make it in the church is a real epidemic because so many people ride pews to hell. Not because they don't know enough or haven't been told the gospel, but because they have attempted to do the right things without ever knowing the right person in Jesus Christ. So we'll continue to pretend. You're so far from the Lord. You're so far from others that loneliness sets in and things get exhausting as you try to put on this fake show. I've loved and walked with so many guys over the years that in the end struggled with secret sin for years and never told anyone anything because they thought that everyone else was okay because of the facades that they put on. Let's not be that at Church of the Valley. Let's be real. They didn't think anyone else struggled with the issue that they struggled with. They didn't think anyone else had a problem that they had. They didn't think people wrestled with anger, that they struggled with lust, that they had an issue with pornography or fear of responsibility. And they felt that they were all alone because the church had become just a very, very pristine and clean place where no one ever struggles. And that leads me to the third thing that I think happens when we're not honest with God and others. That when you look the part of a Christian, you'll justify yourself to others and maybe in your own heart by pointing to the outward expression of service that you've done. You may look to your Bible studies that you've been a part of, or maybe even led worship services that you've attended, your utilization of your gifts. And whatever your fear is, whatever your doubt is, whatever an addiction may be, whatever your issue is, that all your strength, all your energy, and all your effort will go into fixing this one thing, or hiding this one thing, or avoiding this one thing, or trying to overcome this one thing, and that thing will eat you alive because you've forgotten the gospel of Jesus Christ. The objective evidence of God's love and care for you is that Jesus died in your place while you were still a sinner and physically rose from the dead, proving that he is who he says that he is. And because he is resurrected, those who have trusted him will resurrect. And we don't think about that when we're just trying to get other people to believe that we and God are good. And unfortunately, for so many of us, we become task-driven, not cross-driven. So you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. Can, can we just be real? You're going to stumble. You're going to have these moments where you fall short and you're going to have these moments where you're going to fall back in your former habits. And if you don't understand the cross, 
If you don't understand the mercy of God given to us in Jesus, then you'll try to just gather up enough strength to overcome this thing that you cannot beat. So you take your eyes off of the objective evidence of God's love for you through Jesus who died for you while you were at your worst. So how does sin lose its power in our lives? I actually get emailed this all the time. It's not by us disciplining ourselves in such a way that our sin doesn't own us. It doesn't happen by mowing over weeds. It happens by marveling at the beauty and the gift of God's mercy and grace through the death and resurrection of his only son. That's what makes sin lose its power, to marvel in the beauty of God and the goodness of his gospel. That's what makes sin lose its power. When Jesus becomes more attractive and more beautiful than our sin, when he becomes more beautiful and attractive than our fear, than our doubt, it's in that moment when we see the cross and understand that whatever struggle, whatever trial, whatever suffering that we're going through, it's not punitive. We're not getting it because we necessarily deserved it. See, we don't deserve life at all. We are dealing with struggles because life is broken and Jesus is the only fix. So I want to end with this quote from Matt Chandler as he was talking about this very passage in a sermon. And he ended saying this to his church. And I totally resonate with this. And when I heard it, I said, amen. And so I want to read it to you. Here's what Matt said. Here's my hope. My hope is that you grow tired of playing church, that it just exhausts you. And that all the trash that you've picked up over the years about not being able to be honest or having to be perfect would get lost in this series, Habakkuk. It's simply not true. God delights in showing mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. It's the whole point of the Bible. We're going to take an offering. And even now as we shelter in place and watch the playlist apart from most people or maybe with our family and friends, that we would be consistent in believing that God is still God no matter what we're going through. That he has made a church community that is not the steeple, but is the people. And that we're going to continue to minister outside of the church campus, which was where most of the ministry takes place anyway. So if you're part of COV, if you are growing more in the likeness of Jesus through this community, and you're giving of your offering to the church, I want to thank you because you're making it so we can continue to do the ministry that we do. And so if, if you want to give towards the ministry of COV, you go to covalley.com forward slash give, and you can give or you can send it to the address that it will be on the screen right now. But I want to encourage you that we as a community do what we do because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we find our identity. That's where we find our goodness. It's not because of what we've done. It's because of what Christ has done. And that's why we continue to create these playlists. That's why we continue to pray for you and check in on you and hope that you're having the opportunity to connect with other people in this very weird time. Now I'm going to pray. And I already know that like people are shutting their Bibles. Maybe they already did that at the offering part. And I know that praying a pre-recorded prayer and having you actually sit wherever you are to close your eyes and bow your heads, it's stinking weird. But I want to encourage you to do so. And I want you to hear the words that I'm going to pray during this pre-recorded prayer and ask that you would just prepare your heart in this time as we respond. 
through what you've been taught today. Let's pray. God, that, um, that was harder than I thought. And I don't, uh, I want to encourage our people with your word and I know it's true. And yet in the past few hours, I feel more like Habakkuk right now asking why you would allow things to happen or not, or seem passive in circumstances. And so I don't know everything about my friend who's passed, but you do. And I know that you loved him and I know that you love him. And I know that you're at work within our community. And so God, I don't want to be that person that just voices concerns and never gets real with you. And so God, I'm, I'm frustrated. I'm upset. But I know that you are God. And I know that you are taking care of your people. And I know that you are going to bring peace to people that have been affected by this tragedy. I know that you are going to continue to make disciples through your church of the living God. I know that you're going to take an offering of what people give and you're going to use it for the glory of your name. And so, Lord, I rest in the peace that comes from knowing you. I thank you, Lord, for Jesus. And I thank you that he is my salvation that he is the one that we can look to, and he is the one that says that we don't have to fake anything. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.